Well, here we are again. Welcome to Story Conversations. Um, as always, I'm Simon Arrowsmith and with me is... Susan Griffin. Hi, Susan. How are you doing? I am really good, really good. Good. P- particularly given our guest today mm. who... Um, Tell us more about our guest today. Well, you know, our guest is the Reverend Micah Busey. Um he is an ordained minister at the Judson Memorial Church in Greenwich Village in New York. Um, and it's a congregation who uh, really looks at the idea of expansive spirituality, radical social justice, and uncensored creative expression. Mm-hmm. Um, Micah is quite unique in terms of the way he approached his spirituality. And I came to know him through a book he wrote during the pandemic called The Book of Tiny Prayer, Daily Meditations from the Plague Year. Um, We'll hear more about that and more about Micah's fascinating take on spirituality yeah here we go well um welcome reverend micah um we thank you so much for joining us um we'd love to start our conversations by asking our guest to share a little bit about their origin story so um tell our listeners how did you get where you are today you're an ordained minister at the judson memorial church in greenwich village in new york we'd love to learn a little bit about that journey oh well i'm so happy to be here and i guess i will start us off in the heart of america ohio um, where i grew up in a little town called hudson halfway between akron and cleveland up in the northeastern part of ohio um, and I grew up the son of a preacher man. And I uh, had story as part of my life from the very beginning. So clearly watching my own father use storytelling as a means of preaching and teaching as a pastor. I also have a mother who is from North Carolina. So we have that great Southern quality of not really having a, a a topic that couldn't be better explained by telling a long story about it. Um, and so I have that coming from both sides of, of, uh, of my, my parental realm. Um, I've got my pastor father. I've got my, my mother, who's a wonderful storyteller um, and wonderful with colorful detail. And also then if it's not obvious already, I had the stories that typically, you know, children of preachers and kids that go to Sunday school um, grow up with. So all of the things from the Hebrew Bible, all of the things from the uh, Testaments of Jesus and uh, Paul's epistles, um, the rainbow and Noah's Ark, uh, Hmm. Adam and Eve in the garden, all of these things uh, were just kind of threading through me from a very young age, but also from a very young age, I knew that I was a queer kid. Um, I didn't have any models for being a gay man. Um, and and I'll, I'll try to differentiate and show you what I mean in terms of kind of n- 
pulling apart the word gay and pulling apart the word queer, although they're very related for me as well. But I will say, I knew that something was queer about me. I knew that something was different about me. Um, I knew that something was a little off and weird and out of the box. And so from a very early age, and I'm, I'm talking probably like three, four, five, um, I was taking these stories, especially the stories of scripture, and queering them. I was writing little musicals that were based on the stories. Um, I was creating characters from the margins of the stories and making up uh, different versions of the stories and things that had been left out of the stories. Um, in the Jewish tradition, I now know that that's called a tr the tradition of Midrash, um, that essentially there is this tradition of saying, okay, we have this story, um, and, and now let's tell the stories of all the things that are kind of left out. That's my definition of Midrash. There are probably lots of people who would, who would have a different definition. But mm. I was doing this practice um, of, of really taking the base stories and, and queering them into something that uh, felt a little more fabulous into something that felt a little more fantastical. Um, so I'll fast forward here to, you know, I, I did that growing up in, in Ohio for years. And then I made the decision when I was about to end high school to move to New York City um, to go to Fordham University because I was falling in love with the Jesuit tradition. And I also wanted to study both theater and theology because theater had been a safe haven for me and a place to queer stories and have a safe place to do it. Um, and also uh, theology clearly was in my lifeblood. And so I wanted to go to undergraduate study theater and theology and then immediately go into seminary and, and become an ordained minister. But um, something happened halfway through undergraduate, which is that I finally came in contact with gay people and queer community. And I found a safer place for myself mm. than church had ever seemed, which I hadn't been able to name up until that point. And unfortunately, at that moment, I had also started to kind of listen to the stories that are told by fundamentalist Christianity, which had never been, um, you know, steeped. Uh, I was I had never been steeped in them by my father because he was um, he was very liberal. But the I had started to kind of seek out these fundamentalist stories, and so by the time I found gay community, queer community, um, I thought, okay, there's no reconciling these two things, and so by that time all the Christian stories and the church stuff that I'd grown up in didn't seem nearly as fun and fabulous as the queer community that I was discovering. And so I dropped theology like a hot potato and ran toward queer community. Um, and so I, I continued to study theater in undergrad after you know that halfway point, completely dropped theology and kept it dropped until... Um, probably uh, like maybe my, my mid twenties. And then, uh, so if, what, what that means is that I had a queer community that really didn't know this aspect of me and my, my own reality and my own story, which was that I had grown up in church and yes, had been harmed in lots of the ways that, that 
a lot of queer people are, but um, also had a deep love of it. And of course, a deep love of these stories. Um, and when I finally decided and started to feel the call uh, to pursue going to seminary again and, and, and being ordained as a pastor, um, I had, an, had a, a complete group of friends who, who were completely, um, had the rug pulled out from under them because they were like, who are you? We had no idea that this was part of your story. Um, and I had been very lucky that when I did come out, um, my family was basically um, pretty on board. I, I never really had to suffer, you know, these these kind of tragic moments that many queer people uh, do in terms of uh, being dismissed by their family. But I call that moment where I told my queer community that I was going to go to seminary and become a minister my second coming out because <laughs> that was the moment that was the moment where I was trying to tell my story I was trying to say this is me I I can reconcile these things now I, I want to to pursue you know being a minister and I was getting you know from the the, the classic stuff that was like I think this is just a phase I <laughs> feel really betrayed by this choice um, and I take that very oh, seriously um, but I you know so it what that did was really invite me to be very intentional as I approached seminary, as I approached um, being ordained and, and now my work at, at Judson, that I think that I am in the business uh, and I have the vocation of using story for what I call soul repair. Mm -hmm. I think that I have to give back to the LGBTQ community um, a bit of repair and um, and grace and generosity because I haven't suffered in the way that many of those folks have. Mm. They have I have not been damaged and harmed and had violence inflicted on me by Christianity or religion in general. And so I I consider it my duty as a queer pastor to meet people where they are, especially LGBTQ folks, and listen to their stories and attempt not to proselytize, not to evangelize, never, never part of, of what I want to do. But it's more about listening to their stories so that they can be heard, they can be known, and we can lean into mystery together. I wake up every morning an agnostic. I never know what I believe. Don't tell the ordination committee, but I, <laughs> I have no idea whether I'm a Christian on any given day. But I don't know for me that that's what spirituality and faith are actually about. Mm -hmm. I always approach my faith and spirituality in the form of a question. And so for me, um, storytelling is a, also about asking good questions so that you are pulling the story out of the person that you are talking to, inviting them to be known and to know themselves better, to lean into mystery together, and to continue to be queered and to queer one another through the stories that you're sharing, the ones, the, the elements of the story that you recognize, the elements of the story that disorient you, the elements of the story that kind of poke at your brain and, and uh, invite you into a different reality and a different, uh, realm of imagination um 
And but it's all about mystery and story and question asking for me. I love that. Yeah, that, it's amazing. I I love some of the choice of words that you've used. You know, as a child, making these stories that you heard more fabulous. There's a lot that I see in your work that leans into joy and um, f- f- fun. I guess. I mean, it, it, but then when we talk about um, using these for soul repair um it's 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 a joyful possibility and i'm struck by the notion that not only did your queer friends not know your genesis story did you see what i just did there um <laughs> but they didn't know the stories of possibility that faith could bring to them and therefore your choice just seemed again disorienting which um i I, i'm i'm fascinated with how that that all um evolved um as you got to judson memorial church and and for our readers readers for our listeners could you um Explain a little bit about what makes Judson Memorial different from most congregations. Sure. Um, So I think of Judson as a very queer congregation. Um, That, of course, does mean that we have lots of members who would identify and identify as LGBTQ. But it mostly means to me that we are a congregation who loves the question. Um, So at the Q at the end of LGBTQ, um, oftentimes, you know, there, there, there's still, I mean, the debates have quieted down, I think, but there's still that debate of whether it means queer or questioning. To me, especially in the context of Judson, the words queer and questioning mean the same thing. Mm. To be queer in the world means to question every single thing, every moment of every day of your life, both the empire and white supremacy and capitalism and isms and and all of the things that we need to question um, in dominant society and also having the humility to question your own assumptions your own presumptions the uh, your own um proclivities and 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 your own ways of cutting yourself off from becoming your most fabulous self and I think that that at Judson, at our best, and, and notice I say at our best, because we don't always do it uh, this well, but I think at our best, we approach every Sunday morning service, um, every single thing that happens in the building and in the congregation in the form of a question, um, so that we are not doing what I fear fundamentalism always does, which is say, we've got to stick to this story, and it's got to be this. You've got to pour your entire belief into this story. And if you question one single thing about it, then it's all going to fall apart. Mm. Instead, we say, what if it's all just a mess? What if it's all just chaos? And we lean into that. We lean into it and ask questions about the mystery. Um, So at Judson, you know, when a lot of times I I run arts programs, and these arts programs are, are completely uncensored. So it is not about 
you know, reaching out to artists and having them come in and be like, hey, you know, write a musical about Jonah and the whale. Um, I'm happy for them to do that. And I did do that at, at about seven years old and wrote a terrible <laughs> musical about Jonah and the whale. Um, but the I think what it is about is saying artists come into this space and make exactly what you want to make. We think that what you're doing, regardless of whether it harmonizes um, completely with our our spiritual stories and our sacred texts, it's we're going to treat it like sacred texts. And we put it up against our traditions in the space and um, and and use it to to work as prophecy um, to and, and when I call it prophecy, I mean that the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, the prophets in our sacred texts, what I believe they were doing is performance art. They were essentially storytelling in the street and trying to disorient people so that they could reorient themselves and then find a new orientation for themselves and for broader society. Um, oftentimes, I think that when we think about prophets, we think of people who make statements and send them out into the world. And I think it, it sometimes, it oftentimes can be a word that a lot of people who have left, you know, religion are pretty allergic to. I think people are allergic to the word prophet. I think they're allergic to the word preaching and minister and pastor. Um, but I think that if we think of prophets as being question askers and performance artists in society, um, then we start to be able to listen to them in ways that, again, disorient us so that we can question everything that we thought was real um, in order to really uh, move into and lean toward horizons that we never would have thought of on our own. Um, and, you know, to, to reiterate, I think that question asking means that we are queering ourselves at every moment. Um, to get back to kind of more concrete things about Judson, um, you know, we, we have a, a relatively small congregation. Um, but ever since we were built in 1892, we've basically had three legs to our stool, which is open-minded spirituality, unfettered creativity, and radical social justice seeking. And so we have never known how to be a church unless we have organizers and activists and artists coming into our space, queering the space, queering us, and sending us back out into the world completely reimagined. Um, so if you went to the Judson website, you'd see, oh, sure, at 11 o'clock, they have a Sunday morning service. A pastor is going to give a sermon. There's going to be songs and they're going to read texts. So it's there are, in many ways, we can look like and be a normal church. But then every other night of the week um, and oftentimes in the service itself on Sunday, um, there's always going to be an organizer, an activist, an artist who comes in and um, kind of jumbles everything up so that we we get a bit chaotic in the moment um, and what you thought you were coming to see and hear and experience ends up being a little bit different or a whole lot different i have to say the idea that queer 
querying and questioning is the same thing has answered i think it explains a lot about me that's that's what i've learned in the, in the, I'm like, oh my oh my goodness <laughs> that it's unlocked something it makes complete sense i, th- I think go on susan no no go ahead no i i was I, I just think it's um it's a fascinating idea and you know the 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 fusion or the closeness of spirituality and art uh, you know it's it's undeniable i think it's very refreshing you know for me the closest i get to an organized religion is i guess my deity would be stephen sondheim so you know <laughs> you know uh, he's he's one of my patron saints and, too exactly <laughs> and having having a, a hymn like sunday in the part with george is is that's a that's a spiritual um and it's an artistic exp- expression experience i am never not moved when i hear that song um i, I think it's i think it's fascinating go on Susan, what were you going to say well i also think that what you've defined by coupling queer not queer and questioning or queering and questioning makes it so much more inclusive and inviting to those who have associated queer with something that they are not. And it also um, challenges us to embrace questioning and queering ourselves uh, and not being afraid of, of looking at all of these things through a different lens, you know, going back to the idea that fundamentalism says we have to stick to the story. Well, the story, if it was written centuries ago, cannot anticipate the realities of today, and we have to we have to interpret the story differently. We have to question the story by our own ex- current experiences and what we anticipate the world is evolving towards. So this this for me this suddenly becomes an incredibly open, inviting, inclusive environment in which I can feel comfortable mm-hmm. exploring my own questions. And feel comfortable getting uncomfortable too. <laughs> and I think that that's, uh, yes. that's what I hear you saying. And, and I also think that the... Um, I love what both of you have said, and I, the, the power of of what I think you're pointing to as well, to get a little meta here for a second, is <laughs> that I just shared with you a story. I just mm-hmm. shared with you my own. I didn't, you know, my genesis was not that I, I was born one day and I was like, queer and questioning. That's, <laughs> that's the gospel I have to spread in the world. It has been through my mm-hmm. encounters with every single person who has changed me where I can come to this podcast and present it as if right. it's something I came up with. Yeah, right. Yeah. You're a hero's journey. You're a hero's absolutely, journey. Right. Absolutely. And so the, um, so I, I feel like, you know, my, my favorite theologian, um, Frederick Beekner died this past week, uh, died two days ago. And he, I never met him, but he affected me so much. Um, and he has the, he has wonderful quotations probably all over the place about what I'm about to say. But, you know, one major one basically deals with like you, your story is going to affect the story of every single person that you meet. And once once you tell your story to someone else, you will never see 
the the millions of stories that then tendril out and are are affected by that one encounter that you had with one person and so i'd like to believe that in the way that many people have fed into me kind of you know nonchalantly throwing out the queer and questioning into this conversation now i'll never see all the places where that comes up in a conversation that each of you have and therefore that spreads like a gospel and when i say gospel i mean it with a lowercase g like mm. meaning the good news i'd like to believe that that was good news i gave you today yeah and uh and you'll spread the good news well that's an interesting segue into a very concrete manifestation of your storytelling i first met you actually through Another guest on Story Conversations, Will Nolan, who was episode eight in season one, when you appeared at Leola's Ladyland Lounge and talked about your book, um, The Book of Tiny Prayer, Daily Meditations from the Plague Year. Could you tell us the story of how that came about and and just because it it's it's been very powerful for me but i'd like our audience to hear you talk about it absolutely and you you might notice i've probably already done it in this conversation but i'll probably do it even more as we continue um i also believe that my role as a pastor is to be a fool in society so a lot of times when i tell stories i will be the fool at the center of it all um, both kind of in the Shakespearean sense of like wanting to be a troublemaker, but also kind of just in the literal sense of like, I'm pretty foolish and I'm always learning. And so, um, you know, one, I think that one place to start with telling the story of the Book of Tiny Prayer is that I have to admit that as confident as I might sound, as, you know, in, in these first minutes of this podcast, Knowing that I have a very large group of LGBTQ identifying friends and even not, you know, right? Like church has damaged a lot of people. I got a lot of friends, no matter how they identify, who don't want to go to church um, and, and really still don't get my choice. So I have, I will say that I have kind of tamped down um, my my own uh, storytelling about prayer and my own my own beliefs a lot of times over the over the years um, I lean into fabulosity and queering and question asking but I rarely kind of uh, used to really you know bring bring up like well what is my prayer life like or or what what do I believe about these sacred stories you know what all the stuff that you get asked at, at your ordination. Um, ecclesiastical council before before you, you get uh, the go-ahead to be a, a pastor. So I give that prelude to say my social media presence is often about the art and the artists that I'm supporting. It is often about the activists and organizers and movement work that I'm supporting um, and, and, and what I'm participating in. I would say that rarely up until a few years ago, was it something that was going on at Sunday service or something that was about religion or faith or spirituality? But something happened um, the week that New York City went into lockdown 
at the at the start of kind of the 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 the, the pandemic, um, and essentially I was running around trying to find an open bank as everything was closing. Um, I was working for a, an immigration organization, and we really wanted to bond as many people out of ICE detention as we could before uh, lockdown started, because we knew that if you know the pandemic and, and COVID was spreading like wildfire through prisons and, and ICE detention centers, and I really believe that ICE detention centers shouldn't exist. I think that ICE shouldn't exist, but that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> so I... I, uh, I I was desperately you know running around trying to find an open bank so that I could get cashiers checks to to get folks out of detention, and it was March twenty fourth, and I was you know kind of looking at my Google Maps trying to trying to figure out uh, where to try next, and an alert popped up that the playwright Terrence McNally had had just died from COVID, and I can't really explain it, but something happened in a wave over me where I needed to name and acknowledge that this person's story and the stories that he had told in the world had made me, had created me, had created the stories that I was telling in the world. And I needed to name that this human being had given voice to generations of people at a very scary time when AIDS was ravaging the the gay community, the queer community. And now his life had been taken by this pandemic. There all of that kind of chaotically just just formed in my my heart and my mind. And much to my surprise, um, what I did was write a prayer of gratitude and posted it on social media. I had never posted anything even like that, that even looked like a prayer anywhere near social media before. Um, but it basically said today's tiny prayer for Terrence McNally. And then there were like, you know, I, I, I forget, but it's like 20 to 23 words that made up this prayer. And it was just a very succinct um, prayer of gratitude for his life. And I posted it and people responded and i'm not you know it didn't it, I, we didn't go viral or anything right but it's like suddenly a community that was there responded and it and of course some of it was specifically about terrence mcnally but some of it was i believe out of a disorientation of of why i had written a prayer <laughs> of why there was the word amen in this this post that I had put up. <laughs> and the next morning I woke up and automatically I wrote another prayer. And I kept doing that until it became what we call a practice. And so for an entire year, each morning I would get up and I would check in with my body I would check in with the news and what was going on both inside me and outside me. And I would make the decision that in a time where I feel like we all felt completely overwhelmed, both by what was happening in the world and what was happening in our own 
psyches and bodies, I decided you don't have to address all of it right now. You don't have to pray and fix all of it right now. What you are called to do is write one tiny prayer about one thing that you're going to name and focus on that day. So it, it runs the gamut. You know, now there's a book, the Book of Tiny Prayer that was published by Fordham University Press. Um, it's, a, it's a collection of 366 prayers, one that was, that was posted a day. And it's kind of a motley group of prayers because you could, you could read it and sort of say like, okay, this is a devotional. Okay. It's, it's general. It'll always speak to me. And then there'll be a prayer, you know, for a very specific person. Mm. And, and so, but, but what it is, is I feel like that book tells the story of where I was that entire year. Um, you, I, I now look back at it and there the prayers point to a person that I recognize. They point to a person that I really don't recognize. They point to moments that I actually, if I, if I hadn't tasked myself with writing a prayer, I don't think I would have been vulnerable and told people about, because quite often there are prayers, you know, for very, you know, more general things that are, you know, what that might be happening within oneself. And I mean, I, I'm not going to overstate that, like, people don't already get this, but like, oftentimes those prayers are for me, you know, they're, yeah. they are, they're telling the story of where I was that day. Mm. I was the one that needed a prayer for being ornery. I was the one who needed a prayer, you know, because I was mad at somebody or because I didn't know what to do. Um, and that I, 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 well, to quote our patron saint Stephen Sondheim, I, w I was standing in the middle of the room you know, not going left, not going right. I feel like that's what we were all doing and maybe right. even are doing, you know? And, right. And so it's the story in, in 366 little bite-sized pieces of, of a person, a very specific person um, responding to a very specific time. But I hope that like, like other stories, by reading that and, and reading those very specific things, you can, you can, uh, one can find themselves inside it. I mean, I, that's exactly what I was about to say is that there's something about specific stories that give us that universality, that gives us that human connection that we're craving for. We, we find ourselves in the story, in the storyteller. And, you know, for Susan and I working with clients, they will often want to tell this very, broad general story and well no 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 go specific the more specific your clients your customers your readers will find themselves in the characters in the moments of conflict they'll find that um it's so important that that specific specificity there we are there's that word i can't say again yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the you common thread yeah, yeah the common thread <laughs> yeah um i yeah. i i love the fact that you know in those extremes where there were tiny prayers dedicated to something that was quite current and and affecting the whole world um you know the the murder of uh, george floyd um the explosion in beirut but then you have these my my favorite of the more general you know for those who can't who just can't find the right words for those who can't believe they've been wearing the same thing for 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 days i mean these <laughs> These are the tiny prayers that were incredibly relevant at, 
on that day for you, but I will open up the book just randomly and I will find something that is somehow incredibly important and relevant for me on on this day now when we are theoretically past the pandemic year. Um, yeah. And, I'm so glad. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I will, I will also say, you know, <clears throat> I, I assume that we will, we will get to this and, and maybe listeners are wondering this, uh, especially if the word God is, is a, is a word that is just not one that you like um, yeah. or one that has a lot of baggage attached to it. And it, it was very, it was very important to me to really lean into kind of my favorite thing that's ever been written about prayer um, by the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who basically said, I, and, and you know, lots of different translations of it, but it basically boils down to, um, I don't pray because I think it changes God. I pray because I know that prayer changes me. And I, I wanted to invite people in to intentional naming of your own experience and story and or the experiences and stories that you were, you were absorbing in the news and not thinking that you had to, although I'm happy to have a, a theological talk with people too, um, not, you don't have to pray to a deity mm. and and especially to a deity that's like some you know now old white guy in the sky but what does it mean if you just name something take take your timeline and stop it for a moment so that you are not doing anything but leaning into an intention paying attention and taking the time to be quiet to quiet that hum that we always feel we have to be, you know, moving in and, and putting out into the world. Um, and instead, stop mm-hmm. to name what is happening. And you don't have to use the word God to do that. Just but, naming but, it has power. But you did end every prayer with amen, mm-hmm. which is... Talk to us about that choice. Totally. Well, so now that we've talked a bit about disorientation in, the, in this conversation, I think uh, to be cheeky about it, I always want to be disorienting people. So I want the word amen to be an invitation to some kind of disorientation of like, oh my gosh, that's the, <laughs> I don't like that word because it reminds me of, you know, the the nun who used to wrap my knuckles and then she'd do a prayer and there was a, an amen at the end or you know, some, some other, some other uh, specific memory of the baggage that, that we carry with these words. But I, I say in the introduction to the book that most importantly, what I want the word amen to be is an invitation to then turn your words into actions. Um, there, there is, uh, Frederick Buechner again pointed out that in Hebrew, the word um, that, 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 there, there's word and deed have the same word. And so what does it mean if you're, um, if, if you're not just naming something, but that then you are moving into how do you then put those into action? How do you make a new commitment creatively to 
your own transformation or to contributing to the transformation and collective liberation of the entire world. Um, and, and I think again, when I, I say like the collective liberation of the entire world and, and then no pressure, um, but it's, <laughs> but for me, it's like biting off one thing at a time and trusting that we are, we are part of the collective that we are part of an entire world that could be each biting off a, a, a bite each day. And then collectively you are, you are actually making transformation um, happen. Uh, so I, I think of the Amen as an invitation to, to creative commitment. Nice. That's great. Um, you know, in addition to all these other things you're doing, you're a contributor to an interfaith website, uh, Spirituality and Practice. But mm -hmm. you've also got this, uh, again, un, you know, somewhat um, disorienting side gig of being a reviewer of films, and often films in the horror genre. Um, you wrote a, a review about the um, the film Us. If if our audience isn't aware of it, it's quite um, arresting <laughs> uh, horror film. But in that review, you talk about um, film as an allegory and a parable, and you you go on to say allegories and parables are not meant to make complete sense. They're actually meant to utterly demolish at what would normally make sense. They're meant to conjure mood, invite revelation, and nudge unexpected transformation, which now, having had this conversation, I realize is part of your mission to instigate disorientation. But talk about, talk about how your work reviewing films and and I know you you go to film festivals in Europe every year. Um, talk about how this connects back to that message of fabulosity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I I do. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm so I, I have like fifteen different directions I could go in, so I'm holding myself back because I also well, specialize in extravagant enthusiasm, and I just will <laughs> well, go. But I, actually, the you know those those ideas of allegory and parable are archetypal story frameworks and ones that are so often connected to scripture, mm -hmm. but how you then attach them to film and then bring people back to. Mm -hmm questioning yep. this yep. this through allegory and parable that would be interesting yeah. absolutely i mean i think that the an important thing that happens anytime i talk about the fact that i'm a film reviewer or that i serve um you know sometimes for on, on the ecumenical jury uh, for film festivals is that a lot of times people are asking so what you like you you review films you know that are about Jesus or you review films that are about specific religious subjects. And I'm like, well, sure, I'll do that too. Um, but to me, it's, it's more about the lens through which you are exploring um, stories and treating them all as if they have the power to be potential prophecy for you 
and to serve as sacred texts. So when I look back at the sacred texts that have now become the scripture for the Christian tradition, right? So we've got the Hebrew Bible, we have the, the what, what we call the New Testament, um, and then various other sacred texts. They're a mess, right? They're, they're like, they're, they're cobbled together. And what I think is most powerful about them is that they are a chronicle of human beings trying to deal with mystery and trying to figure out how to live as human beings as ethically as possible in the world when the world is constantly throwing mystery and questions in your face. That's what I think our, our sacred texts are. It's just a chronicle of people being messes, trying to sort through the chaos and tell enough stories and, and cobble them all together enough that we can start telling the story of who we've been, who we are, and what we can become. So when I say that I read a, a film as a sacred text, it's not necessarily because I think it needs to join the canon of, you know, of, of Christian scripture, right? Although I'm open to it. Um, but I think that what it is, is why, aren't, why don't we approach everything with both the playfulness and the reverence that, that many faith traditions approach sacred texts? Why don't we open ourselves up and say, this thing has something to teach me. Um, when I think of my role as, you know, what I guess would be called a critic or a reviewer, um, I, at, at Spirituality and Practice, we tend to call ourselves film recommenders instead, because if I really, A, I, I have several rules for myself. If I, I've, I very rarely don't finish a film. Um, in fact, I don't know the last time that I didn't finish something um, that I was experiencing. But my rule is if I do step away from it, I can't review it. Um, there are other people who can do that. There are other people who, who I think their gift is to, is to really get inside nuts and bolts why something isn't working. For me, that is not my gift. My gift is to invite people into saying, sure, it didn't work. It's a mess, but isn't it all a mess? Um, mm -hmm. Or that was beautiful. And, and that, was, that was like the best thing I've ever seen in, in, the, in my life. And now I'm going to try to say why it spiritually works for me on, on a deep, deep level. Um, so that's, why, that's, that's how my, my film reviews work. And then with the ecumenical jury, um, which essentially, you know, if, if the word ecumenical isn't one that, that immediately folks can define, it, it's essentially a multi-faith jury um, of, of people of different faiths coming together and, and reviewing films together um, in these festivals. Um, what we're looking for is the film or films that we think are working on a deep spiritual level. Again, not specifically about faith or religion but the ones that are nudging us toward transformation, the ones that are disorienting us and reorienting us and sending us back out into the world different than we were when we started the film. Um, I think that, you know, when we talk about parable and allegory, you know, I think I'm all for very linear storytelling as well. I think that there's a place for it. And especially, um, you know, for, for the purposes of, of, uh, getting messages across. Um, I think that linear storytelling really can be a beautiful thing. I also think 
that parables and and if we look at at Jesus as this queer storyteller, this queer radical, that you read Jesus's parables and many of them, maybe all of them don't make sense. They actually don't make sense. And actually if some if a faith leader tells you exactly what that parable means, run. <laughs> run. Because I don't think that Jesus put down those parables and or whoever the chroniclers are who put these words in Jesus's mouth, right? I don't think that they put those parables there because it's a linear story that's supposed to get into our brain one message. I think that the role of those parables, much like the film Us by Jordan Peele, um, I think that it was to create this gift that we can not just receive but interact with, have it speak to us, share with us the story that it is bursting to tell, and then invite us to tell our story back to it. Mm-hmm. And it's there in the, in the collaboration there. It's co-creation. There's, there's, the, there's either the, the sacred text or the film or the book you're reading or whatever, and then there's you. Those are two separate things. But when you are put together, when the story that's being told to you is then combined with you and your own story and all that you bring to that moment, then a third thing is created in the middle. And that's the mystery. That's the sweet spot. That would be the thing that I try to articulate in a review. It's the thing that I try to ask questions about in a sermon. Um, But I think that we don't often pay attention to that middle, that middle space a lot of the time. Um, the first sermon I ever delivered at Judson after returning from the first time that I, I ever served on an ecumenical jury was called um, Moving Beyond Meh, because I wanted to say, like, so often the way that we approach story, especially if it's in media, right, like a movie that you're going to see or a book you're reading or a song you're listening to or a dance you're watching, whatever, um, we we approach it ready for it to not be the thing that we want it to be. And if it then becomes not something that's immediately satisfying to us, so often we will say, Meh, it was fine, or that was terrible. I'm going to leave maybe a bit early, or even if you sit through the whole thing, um, you're going to, you'll, you'll stop thinking about it. I'm like, what if you actually meet it and move beyond that first meh, feeling, even if it's a complete mess, and and lean into the third thing that's happening in that space between you and the story. I I I feel that often with theatre as well. I'll you know, if I've invested the time to visit a theatre or visit a performance, if it isn't perhaps the greatest thing, trying to find value. There have been very, very few occasions where I have found little or no value and in those circumstances i've been angry and i've kind of gone at least i'm angry at least the, at least the maker has made me feel something i may be mm-hmm. i may want to go and find them and <laughs> but but mm-hmm. you know it's 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 a response isn't it and i completely agree mm-hmm. as I, I when you were talking about that particularly about the idea that um story doesn't have to be linear one of my other patron saints is david lynch so i'm very happy in that kind of area <laughs> we're right we're, we're we're right on the same level here I, I love david lynch absolutely so you're writing another book is that right what's what's that about 
So right now, the working title of the second book is called Quite a Queer Little Year, mm. uh, Prayers for Ordinary and Extraordinary Times. And what I'm trying to do is, so, so the book of Tiny Prayer, you know, as we've already said, is these little bite-sized prayers that really, really don't step out of their lane. They're, they're, they're like, okay, I'm a prayer about this one specific thing. Um, but I also, and, and I would say I have a longer tradition of writing longer form creative prayers uh, that I often will write for services at Judson or for um, uh, interfaith actions that I'm a part of. Um, and, and so I have put together essentially 52 of those longer form prayers and they, they run the gamut from, you know, being a few stanzas long to being, you know, 12 to, to 50 stanzas long. Um, and essentially it doesn't quite uh, line up with, uh, with being sort of a, a, a main liturgical year, but, you know, in, in the Christian tradition, we have the liturgical year. So you follow and you kind of, you know, you move from ordinary time into Advent, into Christmas, into more ordinary time and Easter and all these things. Um, I wanted to queer the idea of the liturgical year and offer 52 longer form prayers that kind of point us toward um, other things um, rather than specifically Christian uh, liturgical uh, holidays and, and holy days. Um, so it it is 52 of these prayers um, with some context given of, of why they were written and what they, uh, the, the communities that they were for. Um, for example, one of them is, uh, was written for a blessing of the animal service for St. Francis Day. And it's, it's a blessing for Carl Thomas Dean upon the occasion of him destroying my most prized possession. I have a beagle uh, named Carl Thomas Dean. Um, if you don't immediately know that reference, he's named after Dolly Parton's husband because we're big Dolly Parton fans here. And and he, at one point when he was a puppy, um, I had I had saved up a bunch of money to buy um, the book that Octavia E. Butler disowned and which isn't printed anymore. And so I'd, I'd saved up, bought a copy of it off eBay, then it disappeared. And I found it a few weeks later under the bed, completely chewed up. Oh. And so I wrote a blessing for this beloved Beagle mix who basically destroyed something that I deeply loved and had decided um, was this material thing I needed. Um, and I tried to find the third the third thing <laughs> in, in between that. I, try, I tried to find the blessing within it. So... That's a long way of saying 52 longer form prayers um, as kind of a companion piece with this uh, collection of 366 prayers. Wonderful. Coming out in 2023? I don't know. We ha I, I really have to get in touch with my amazing editor um, who does seem very keen to publish the this second book. Uh, I, I don't want to put him on the spot in, yeah. in this, uh, this uh, well, podcast, but, but I, I, felt, I felt very... Um, uh, supported by him. And, and actually, as a shout out, I think that it's actually relevant to say, you know, I didn't mean to write a book, right? I didn't, these 366 prayers were, they, they weren't meant to be collected into a collection originally, but basically when I decided to stop writing them, um, I, I 
kind of put out a thing on Facebook that said, thanks so much, everybody, for reading these and praying these prayers and following this with me. And immediately Richard, the editor, reached out and he essentially said, like, I want to make this into a book. And by the way, I've essentially cobbled them together into a manuscript. So like I, this is find people who are willing to help you tell your story as well. That's great. Well, this has been amazing for, for both of us. Um, I know um, to have you on story conversations, we like to end each episode by asking our guest if they have a favorite story. And I guess, approaching you with that ask you know maybe you could it's either a story or one of your tiny prayers what 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 would you like to share with our audience maybe something particularly relevant for those of us who struggle to tell our stories yeah you know what i think uh, as you can tell it's like pulling teeth getting me to talk so um, i'm gonna i'm gonna have to hold myself back but i i'm gonna tell the story of 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 why i think my dad is a queer person um so i i delayed coming out to my father for years because although he had never suggested to me that my queerness and christianity um couldn't be compatible. The world tells you lots of stories about why they're incompatible. And so I delayed it and delayed it and really thought that I was keeping a secret from him. And finally, a couple of years after I graduated from college and I had been living you know, in queer community for several years, um, and again, thought I was keeping it a big secret I decided that it was time to tell him. And so I did it in the way that I thought would be most digestible, which was not to say I'm queer, not to say I'm gay, but to say, I want you to meet this person that I'm dating. And I wanted to introduce a concrete thing rather than a, the, a theoretical idea that I was gay. So clearly a lot of thought had gone into this. I was, I was really terrified about it. And so the moment came and we were sitting together and I said, you know, dad, I, I want to tell you something and I don't know how you're going to respond, but I, I think it's time and I need to tell you. And, and I said, I, I think that I am gay. And my father said, thank you so much for catching up. <laughs> I've been waiting for you. Oh. I've been preparing for this. I've been taking classes. I've been reading <gasps> books. Oh. And I'm going to transfer my ordination to the United Church of Christ instead of the United Methodist Church so that oh. I can be in solidarity with you being gay. And <sighs> he said, I have been preparing for this and I'm ready. Now you be ready. And at that moment, I realized that to go back to what, what we all were talking about a few minutes ago, yes, I think queerness is really fabulously exemplified in the LGBTQ community. But anyone can queer themselves. 
if you are willing to question the stories that dominant society have been injecting into you all of your life, be willing to step outside of your comfort zone, be willing to be wrong and be changed and be transformed, and be willing to look back at where you've been, look at where you are, and then look and see how much more fabulous you can be in the future and reach out and be willing to continually queer yourself for the rest of your life. And I saw, oh, even before I accepted myself, my dad accepted me. And so I think of my dad as a queer person and I hope that anyone who hears that story uh, thinks of themselves as potentially a queer person. And that's not a, a just an adjective or a noun. Mm. It's a verb. You continue queering yourself by changing your story and listening to other surprising stories for the rest of your life. Amazing. We're a bit speechless uh, now. <laughs> yeah. All, all I can think to say is thank you from the yeah. bottom of our hearts. Absolutely. This has been fabulous. Um, thank you so much. This is such an honor. And I love what you two are doing with this podcast. So we need the ways that you're naming um, all of the various ways that storytelling um, can empower us and change us. I, I think we need it. So it's it's truly my pleasure and honor to be with you. And I can't wait to continue to listen to the stories that you're pulling out of folks. Fantastic. Thank you so much. <sighs> <laughs> Ah, it's right. I mean, yeah, so inspirational. He is so inspirational. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, you don't have non-denominationally well, inspirational. That's I mean, it. I mean, I'm, I'm probably the least religious person I know, shall I say that? You know? I'll see your least <laughs> religious and raise you. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, I respect anyone's approach Absolutely. to making meaning in their life. Mm. And um, Mike is Mike's infectious enthusiasm yeah. really brings people in, I hope, in a way that can be as meaningful as in their lives as his take is on mine. Um, you know, for our listeners, maybe it's a little bit um, interesting that we should bring this kind of a conversation. Mm to them in terms of what they can take away. Um, but I loved, I, my first takeaway was really, you know, the idea that backstory matters mm -hmm. and that, um, th that his, his uh, recounting in his youth, how he created these fantastical backstories to those Bible stories that yeah. we, that we all knew about. I mean, enthusiastic backstories you know the 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 enriched soil in which your origin story takes root yeah Not to be too metaphorical about this but <laughs> i i just thought that, today. that yeah we are we are um i i i thought that that had some real 
um, ahas that our audience could use. Oh, de- definitely. I think I think knowing your backstory is really powerful. Being clear on it, understanding it, and everybody else in the organization being clear on it and understanding it means that you don't have to tell the origin story or the brand story wrote. You can you can adapt it because you know enough about the the material. I think it's so important. I mean, and as we as we've said in other story conversations, you know, having those bits of backstory maybe not right at your fingertips, but available for when the backstory is the best amplification of mm. the core narrative. Absolutely. I think the second point um, that, that I think our listeners should be aware of or, or focus on is, is, is our old friend curiosity. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he talked a lot about embracing the question i love that for embracing the oh, question yeah. leaning into the mystery and that that you know the elements of a story sometimes can get you confused um but right but trust right. in the process you know and, and it, that, that that's 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 helpful in itself right and not don't be afraid of of embracing the conflict um we've yeah. we've heard that before um and that allegories and parables are not necessarily meant to make sense, but they invite that transformative examination, investigation. Um, that 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 did speak to me. I can't remember too. who said it, but you know that all all who wonder are not lost. Is that I can't remember whose who's right. quote that is, but I love that that idea that actually maybe we should all carve out time to be curious to get lost to embrace the question yeah to be puzzled but then to be exhilarated by what the exploration reveals to us yeah um i guess my favorite takeaway in the session with micah was the whole idea that your story will affect everyone you meet Mm. and that you never know how the tendrils of your conversation spread and impact people you don't even know have heard it. Yeah. Right. And you know, that's the whole idea of you're not always the storyteller Mm. there, there that you, you amplify the story when you tell it and then other people retell it. Yeah. Those tendrils. I loved the visual image of, of, (laughs) of tendrils um, but you want the right tendrils. Yes, you to want, take root. You, you want the relevant tendrils, the tendrils right. that you you had that you intended. Um, and I guess that's the challenge, isn't it? Is your story crafted well enough and told well enough that it spreads in the right way, that it's shared in the right way, and when other people are telling that story on your behalf, that they're telling it accurately. Right. Well, and and just, you know, at the end of this conversation, I just wanted to remind our listeners that the Book of Tiny Prayer is available in both the UK and the US from a variety of different, you know, wherever you wherever you prefer to get your your books. Um, it, It I have given it as gifts to many family and friends who may or may not be religious. Um, 
And you can also follow Micah on Instagram. And I'm always amazed at how a tiny prayer that he will publish on any given day will somehow be relevant to whatever's going on in in my Mm, life. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you to Micah for joining us. It was a wonderful conversation. Um, I hope our listeners enjoyed it. We'll be back with more story conversations soon. And in the meantime, of course, you can reach out to both Susan and myself via the Griffin and Skeggs Collaborative, Iambic Creative. Details are in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you if you've got problems, challenges around marketing, content, or storytelling. But for now... Indeed. And thanks for listening. Yeah. See you soon.